couple days ago, I was watching the second episode of Promise Neverland. And it was funny because I watched it initially on a full stomach. And then by the end of it, I had an empty stomach and felt hungry. <laughs> Especially that part when the three main kids all said that they were the most intelligent ones and they will also be the most desired ones because they will have the most developed brains and therefore they will probably be the most tasty of them all. It made me think of Wiley e. Coyote chasing Roadrunner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that fell flat, didn't it? Okay. The opinions expressed in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. For Saturday night, May the 1st, 2021, this is episode 41 of the Anime Roundtable Canada. Good evening once again from Six Points, 10 minutes south of the Anime North Compound in the west end of Toronto. Mike Nicholas here, joined as always by James Austin, Kevin Ng, Mohamed Shamarki, and Jeff Gregg, as the roundtable now assembles. As always, we want you to be part of the conversation as well. AnimeRoundtable at gmail.com is our email address, Twitter and Instagram at AnimeRoundtable. AnimeRoundtable.com is our website for full show notes and past episodes. And of course, YouTube, Discord, Twitch, we should mention them, but you know where we are with those. So let's start this week, though, by looking back after we talked a little bit with JP from Anime Lockdown a couple weeks ago in episode 40. Mo and Jeff, I know, have heard the episode already, and I want to get their takeaways from the conversation. So Mo, Jeff, you guys have a thought? Coming from all that? Either of you? I think this would be a good time for crickets, right? <laughs> well, I, I definitely have a like two main uh, takeaways. Uh, the first one was I thought it was really great to hear um, the discussion about the differences between, you know, the fan run conventions and the more, um, you know, corporate ones. Um, and it, it got me thinking about, you know, the status of what these conventions are going to be like, you know, after the pandemic or after, um, you know, things stabilize, um, if that if this pandemic's going to be with us for, you know, years. Um, and, you know, the, the sense of loss that um, at least JP mentioned about that sort of fan run um, atmosphere, um, you know, compared to the corporate ones. And, you know, I, I, I got to thinking like, you know, which ones, like which type of convention are the most vulnerable? And I I don't know if, you know, I have the answer right now. Um, I'm not sure if even either of the, the types of conventions have the answers themselves. Um, but I do, it did give me 
some amount of hope that, you know, the fan run model, I think, will survive because I think that there will be that desire for, um, you know, social experiences and community. Um, so even though that I think that maybe there'll be a lot more of those that maybe die off or aren't able to continue, I do think that either they'll bounce back or other versions of them uh, will eventually bounce back. I'm inclined to agree, actually. it After the episode, I started to think a little bit more about his criticism of the Project Anime article. And the more I thought about it, the more I really came to the thinking that that really just addresses commercial conventions. Yeah. So it was a blueprint... To me, it, it, it at least, not really a blueprint, but it started to address the concerns that the, the big ones, the Anime Expos, the Anime Japans, or whatever it's called there, the industry conventions. To a lesser degree, maybe Comic-Con as well. And even something like Fan Expo, too, I think would fall under that. I think they uh, have to have... Expo as well. Yeah, well, maybe Crunchyroll Expo probably most notably. I mean, there's there's one right there. If that goes through for that merger, then that'll be a big uh, thorn for other uh, conventions, right? Sure, they'll reach out, but how much are they going to reach out if they can do just their own thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, kind of, it, it's sort of like Apple, the way they. I mean, I, I, I was going to say that this this um, this feels a lot like what DC's doing with Comic Con this year with the DC fandom. I feel like industry run. Um, conventions or industry presence at conventions will be lessened as the time goes on, especially if they can do it all online and generate just as much revenue as they would otherwise. I mean, I feel like that would be the route for them to go, right? Yeah, or not so much as much revenue to me. It's more they wouldn't have as many costs. And depending on the industry, too, it's controlling the message and stuff like that. We've seen that in the video game industry with people just bailing on the ESA and E3 even for this year and stuff like that and still doing kind of their own thing online so it'll be interesting what happens with in-person events going forward in the future I mean if, if, if I'm a major mm-hmm. corporation I mean I'm just waiting for when they uh, start really taking hold of uh, NFTs and so forth right I mean make that part of the <laughs> admission you know being like come to our convention you might receive a, a, an exclusive NFT or some exclusive online I thought uh, I thought uh, Sega was talking about doing something with NFTs or something like that earlier yeah, in the future. So it was kind of nuts. That's that's disheartening, especially since like a, a week before the the Sonic Twitter, the Sonic the Hedgehog Twitter had like you know a pro environmental you know tweet. It was kind of. I mean, come on, come on. I mean, <laughs> no, I. I I'm not going to come on. NFTs are incredibly damaging to the environment. I think they are garbage and incredibly problematic. And it's it's hard because I, we can't stop them at this point. The snowball nope. is rolling. And it's over. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly depressing. You know, I see him. I see him in terms of the whole carbon footprint and mining thing. That's the thing. I, I agree with it, but the sad part is. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I was just gonna say like. NFTs, like on a transactional basis, I think it's like for every one, um, not NFT, but Bitcoins, crypto in general, like anytime you buy something with crypto, you're using more energy than a million Visa transactions. Like apparently uh, NFTs uh, 
consume the amount of power that the state of New York generates in total, the whole state. What? And it's I, I, I understand that the the apparently NFTs and cryptocurrency as it is by itself will raise the planet's temperature by two degrees on its own. So yeah, we're fucked. It's over, guys. Nothing we can do about it. Just cash in now. Get your hands as much crypto as you can. It's 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 just the way of the future, buddy. But I, I think what's going <laughs> to the moon again. That's okay. Oh, sorry, I, I yeah. think what's sorry, interesting yeah. about that is that you know I don't think we've seen any evidence of um, you know the sort of uh, corporate conventions as I call them uh, going into the NFT realm. But if they do, which is I think a, a possibility, I think it would weirdly politicize the um the two types of of conventions sort of even more like we'd basically have like capitalist convention versus more socialist conventions you know you're um i don't want to lump anime north in there but uh you know your con bravo or your um frost con you know the more independent uh fan run grassroots type of thing um no, Let's I mean, I, back a yeah, bit. I, I was gonna say, you know, once back. once that that Rubicon is crossed by uh, most likely corporate conventions, once they cross that Rubicon of getting into the NFTs or the exclusives, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's just gonna be uh, fan run versus corporate. I mean, that's that's, and you'll pick the true ver- it's, a, a true it's, version it's, of it. Right? <laughs> and, and I don't conversation in my mind still for NFTs is who exactly is going after them and buying them? Because I'm still scratching my head over them and stuff like that, because in my mind, it's still a recent phenomenon. I think it's similar for Mike too. They're not for people like us. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I mean, yes, because I was into the whole baseball card thing and back you, then. You, you remember how dicey, not dicey, but well, actually dicey, how dicey that was in like the 80s and 90s. I mean, there was a big racket for that back then. And then people, re- like the Beanie Baby effect, you know, it's like, <laughs> it comes in waves. It's, it, it's hilarious. I my hogs. My mother told me. My mother told me that my youngest sister went back to their home, like to my parents' place, a couple weeks ago, and took her Beanie Baby collection, which was sitting in a like a huge plastic bag in what used to be her bedroom. And I, my understanding is the sorting still continues. Okay. So out of interest, Mike, does well, she have the Beanie Baby from the Blue Jays game? Because I know the Jays did one, and we have, I think, a couple of them. They're probably worth nothing, though. I have... Ooh, you... I had oh, two so you have them. two, too. Oh, man. And I they gave were nice. one of them away. I gave one of them away. I still have the other. Its name was Rocket. That was a, a late '90s Beanie Baby. And it was I feel a Blue like Jay. They gave us an and it was... because there wasn't that many people at that game. I forget which game it was. Oh, you mean the a giveaway? Yeah, it was at, a giveaway at the, at the dome. dome. That that was oh, a giveaway at the dome. One. So it might have been a mini version. Beanie Babies and stuff like that. It was blue in that. It might have been a. I'm thinking that might have been a mini version, but just a, a little context. In the late '90s. Roger Clemens briefly played for the Toronto Blue Jays. And around the same time, a Blue Jay Beanie Baby came out and they named it Rocket. It might have been when he was pitching too right there. Oh, no. Probably. Wouldn't be shocked. Anyway, just reel back for a second. So once again, just going back to the whole online thing, just, just to end off that thought. So I could foresee some uh, online components still there in a corporate sense. What about the fan sense? And just for reference, once again, today's May 1st. A couple weeks ago, we did mention today is the last day for signups for the Anime North Stay-at-Home Edition 
for the panels. I think that closed up just a few minutes ago. It's just after 9 p.m. here in Toronto. So what about something like that? Or do we leave that more in the realm of, say, the online lectures, which which we've talked about on this yeah, show? Yeah, like I could see it becoming past. sort of an infrequent thing. Like if there was a lecture that, you know, happened in November or um, February or something that, you know, Anime North was interested in, they thought that, you know, their community or the... Um, you know, the the participants, the guests will be interested in. I could see them partnering with that the same way they, you know, kind of do their their Halloween, um, you know, couple days or day um, event. But I, I don't know if multi-day conventions online will, um, you know, become a thing after, um, you know, we're used yeah. to the, the, you know, new normal or, you know, barring another pandemic. I guess it depends. I guess a lot of it will depend on what normal, new normal, just as you said, will look like. And I, so I sort of agree with JP in the sense I think we all like those social aspects to a degree. Like, well, individuals will have their preferences to varying degrees. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I would say I, I beg to differ. I feel like after what almost two years of lockdowns, uh, conventions will be back in like a major swing. I mean, I, I can see. 2023's anime north being the biggest it's ever been you know absolutely right (laughs) oh the rock a a rock rebound effect okay yeah well yeah i don't think i don't call that necessarily a disagreement it's just i'm wondering what this new normal quote unquote will look like because we because that's been a phrase that's been bandied about since the pandemic began or <laughs> since we th- were thinking that we were near the end of this I could pandemic. See, I could see online so conventions like as a separate entity, um, maybe persisting, but not to the level that they are now. Cause I think that the participation has been almost as, as a necessity or as, you know, a, a desperation or an interest um, in the participants, the guests to kind of have some semblance of what was lost. But I think that there are, you know, for people who might be homebound, for people with uh, social anxiety, um, I think Mm. that there is going to be a market for online conventions. Mm -hmm. I just don't think the participation rates are going to be what they have been throughout the, you know, pandemic proper. That's a fair statement. I I, I would agree, actually. I think thinking on it, too, as well, especially maybe for us here in Canada, for some of the conventions to get certain guests across the border, they're going to have to do it virtually. So maybe they will stream it on their platforms as well. That could be a solution as well there. They might do in the first year or something like that, depending on how the borders work out. Yeah, it's just I could see I could see online just being some sort of accompaniment myself when it comes to the fan side of it. I could see at best a, an accompaniment, but who knows? I mean, I, I just thought I'd put that out there. So our summary, and we can agree or disagree. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. The online component could be an almost replacement on the corporate side. At least we can have that conversation. Certainly not on the fan side. I would say so. But it has a place in some form. That sounds about right. And I will now pose the yes-no question I I posed with JP and Kevin and James to you two. So in light of Watsuki's issues, quote-unquote, what is the possibility of seeing the last two live-action Kenshin movies 
get an official release in North America? Like, yes or no, will it happen? Uh, are we talking computer release? Like, just an official I mean, yeah, release uh, oh, of any sort. There, there will be an official North America release, but not theater release. Yeah, of of any sort. Okay. Like, that was actually my my second takeaway from uh, the, the, the episode. Um, it was... I was trashing... Uh, uh, not us, more JP. Yeah, I, I, it's always Masuki. nice to see that guy taken down a peg. Um, and it was, it was, <laughs> and deservedly. And it Honestly, was great deservedly. to have him have JP come, you know, come out swinging uh, with, with that statement. Um, that that made my my heart uh, sing a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, I am I'm so. I mean, this is more of a Japanese um, <laughs> law thing, but oh no, a two thousand dollar fine for child porn. Oh. Have, what a what a horrid punishment this poor man has! Oh, it's ridiculous. Um, but as <laughs> uh, we as we've established, content creators of that ilk may not always yeah, be rolled. That's in that's, that's fair. Um, but as far as the, the possibility that's of it. the movies coming out, I think that there is a strong possibility because as much as I'm sure he still gets you know some semblance of the the profits, I think that the movies are enough separated from him as a creator that um, they would take the, take, take the risk for a official release. I just don't think it will be heavily marketed. Um, I think that they'll, they'll probably try to release them since the others have been uh, released. But as, as Mo said, I don't think a theatrical release is likely, um, but you know, digital of some kind, I could see it happening. Okay. Okay. There. And that's that. And now we can close the books on episode 40, the landmark <laughs> episode 40 of the version two era. Okay. I know that the big talk this week was Yasuke coming out on Netflix in terms of the streaming side. Kevin, Mo, I know they've watched it. I'll give it a watch. I know in the, within the coming week, give me an impression guys. Give me an impression. I mean, the first the first three episodes I felt were like a really good solid three episodes. Like it could have just ended after that, but then they extended a little bit more. I think by like episode five, six ish, like near the end, the final like bit of it, it, it gave me like X nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety nine vibes, <laughs> the, the dragons of heaven, dragons of earth type feel. But uh, in a good way, in a good way, it was just it just the show was just so much in so many different directions it just it just I, I liked it i really enjoyed it kevin you know it just proves to show that it it took quite a while for to have black creatives come on board and have another example of like black characters doing good things doing awesome things and getting rewarded for doing awesome things it was it was pretty nuts like just watching this journey of uh you know the the black samurai and this girl with well i don't want to say psychic powers but you know this girl with powers because you know you'll you'll find out the end of episode one it's not a spoiler and i think like the first in the first section you find out you know <laughs> the opening scene yeah it's it was just really as I found it kind of bizarre how they mixed in all this like you know this sci-fi-ish like 
mind power stuff yet i was like okay we're in for a show like because that <laughs> opening battle you see these two different forces being pitted against each other and i was like okay this it set the tone and you how, how do i put this like i was working that day at a friend's house because i didn't have home internet and uh it was hard to pay attention to my work i was just very entertained and yeah, I'm down for more stuff like this. Like, it was Dude, very man. engaging. And uh, kudos to LaShawn Thomas to get everybody involved to and to have him to convince Netflix to uh, make something like this. I think that was a part of their goal, too, right? To get creatives across uh, the Pacific and from Europe and other places to uh, collaborate. And this is one of their first big ones and stuff like that so it's interesting how people will uh, take it and it's interesting that uh, LaShawn Thomas he took an actual historical figure that many people don't know about that that was a real Yasuke mm -hmm. was a real person in Japan with Tobo no uh, Nobunaga and stuff like that and yes all of it is fiction but maybe some people make them think about uh, things and maybe research or inspire them and stuff like that and the other well, it Sorry was like, about that, Mike. The one last it, thing it, I was going to say is for those two, I'm not sure Kevin and Mo can say it later, is Netflix is saying the original language is uh, English, which is interesting. Yeah. So, because remember, they do all the languages and stuff like that. So it's interesting that what is a dub, you know what I mean? Like, you can watch it in whatever, and I'm sure that it'll be incredible to watch and stuff like that. I'm not sure if you went dub or sub or if they even had the Japanese up at that point. I went with I, the English dub. Yeah, so did I. I mean, I, I personally just wanted to hear uh, Lakeith Stanfield, you know, redeem himself after Death Note. That uh, it's, uh... Supposedly, he was a big factor <laughs> in that one, too. He was on board as an exclusive producer, and so was uh, Lotus. Uh... Flying Lotus. Yeah, Flying Lotus. It's, to, to James's point, this is the first, uh, when we were talking all those Netflix investing more into anime, this is the first real salvo in all of that, I think. I feel like this show just, right? you know, despite the craziness of it all, like there was real substance there and we can let this show be the representative black samurai show instead of afro samurai agreed <laughs> also the soundtrack was really cool i mean it's got some 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 i can't wait for the lo-fi beats of this to come out yo yeah the music's pretty good uh i do okay. feel like they played the opening song during the tv show a little too much that i started to notice it like it, it fit in most instances but i was thinking okay like playing a little too much now but it's fine i mean minor gripe. Mm -hmm. I I personally skipped the opening after the first time I heard it. I, I for me, openings are always like the first, the beginning of the series, and like at the end of the series, the middle I can just skip it. And uh, hearing it in the, in the in the episodes was pretty nice. One one thing that I just wanted to highlight about um you know you mentioned the a little bit about the voice actors. Um, I think it is noteworthy that both the English and the Japanese voice actors are black men. Um. You know, because a lot of the time, even you know, in Japan, when you do have a black character, they're they're not voiced by um, a black um, actor, uh, yeah. and I think that that's pr I don't want it's it, 
I feel horrible saying that's impressive, but I kind of maybe mean that. Um, well, can I tell you what what I find what I did find it sort of impressive? Nobunaga is played by the same person in both English and Japanese, as far as I could tell. Yeah, like the last time I remember a black person voicing a black character was uh, for Dutch in Black Lagoon. Oh yeah, okay. that's true. Yeah, Black Lagoon, man. Yeah, that was in the dub, and it was funny because he used to be a pilot, I believe, a bush pilot or something like oh, that. Wow. It's a crazy story. Like hearing him in the extras is an incredible thing. His tale. Okay, so there's there it is. The first impression or early impressions of Yasuke. Do you want me to mention my guilty pleasure? Or just want to get right to no, the I rest of it. Hit it up. What do you got? Okay, because the the thing is that wasn't on my plate over the last week. Obviously, it only came on just a few days ago. But what was on my plate this week was the 12-episode 2017 J-drama Million Yen Women. That's been there for a while, but I didn't realize that the star of Million Yen Women was Yojiro Noda, the lead vocalist of Radwimps. And obviously, Radwimps is known for something else for topics we've talked about at length. Didn't know he was acting. I really don't. And that tells you once again how much I had not kept up with things. But there are some names here that sort of caught my attention. Noda, of course, as just mentioned. Riela Fukushima, who was in that. And I know she was in Arrow. She was in The Wolverine. Rina Matsui is in that a former member of Nogizaka 46. So this is one this became one of those guilty pleasures, kind of a harem slash suspense thriller. Is there such a thing? I guess this show. Because <laughs> that's what this the, Yeah, that's what this is. That's a, that's the best way I could describe this if nobody has given it a shot yet. I, I'm pretty sure a handful of people or enough people have because it, it it's i know it has some good reviews but if you want a suggestion that of something that you wouldn't think of there's my suggestion right there and i would like we talked about this last night where how to after i finished it when we were meet, doing the pre-show meeting last night and there were parts of it i was critical of and i said that to you guys but once again, as I think about it again, I lightened up on my criticisms, except for maybe one aspect which I felt ultimately was unnecessary. At best, maybe it was a catalyst, but really I, I had trouble with wondering its relevance in the whole thing. But after I finished talking with you guys last night, and then rewatched certain scenes in the in the show, the more I liked it again, the more I grew to like it. And it's to the point now I would rate this above the many faces of Ido, which I mentioned uh, a few months ago. But uh, there's my uh, recommendation and or my guilty pleasure. I think that's the word I was using. But it, it does lead to some other thoughts and. We're going to start or really get into things this episode. First of all, 
I knew we I know we were joking about trying to do an episode a week in in April. We didn't do that, obviously. And the one thing I hate about doing episodes every other week is something always comes up in that off week. And it simmers and sometimes the stuff is cooled down. And it really isn't worth talking about. That's happened to a couple of different headlines. We are almost on the borderline of the article we're going to talk about in that same sense. So let's start in earnest to a couple weeks ago. And an article The Hollywood Reporter put out about how South Korea and Japan are turning into key battlegrounds as they put it, concerning the next stage of the streaming wars. Of course, when we talk streaming, the easy name is Netflix, and then essentially everyone else is playing some form of catch-up. Specifically, those battlegrounds are in South Korean dramas and Japanese anime. In many respects, we've talked about this, of course, in recent episodes, and they have connected to past stories we have talked about in other forms as well, but it's always good to get a new perspective on this. So the mention of Korean dramas in this article caught my attention, but really shouldn't be surprising when we talk about what's popular in terms of East Asian entertainment exports. But what also caught my attention is how China will fit into this. But not so much as producers, but as consumers as well. And there's a whole load of angles we can take this. And it, as I said, we can end up connecting this to a bunch of other things and a bunch of other stories that have come out in the last week or so because they sort of connect into this as well. Which way do you want to start? Any, James? I guess if we're thinking about, like, they were talking about first mover status, and Netflix is really a first mover. They followed the money. They followed the algorithm. I'm not sure. Uh, we talked about Yasuke and stuff like that. I'm intrigued, I think, as I told you, Mike, what the algorithm tells people after they watch that, where they send them. It's like, is it going to be a Korean drama? Is it going to be a different anime or something like that? And if they continue on the journey, right? That'll be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, we're, we're assuming that this is data driven, right? We're assuming that Netflix looked at all their data and was like, hey, people are watching this, so we should probably put more money into this. Or alternatively, it could just be that not enough people are watching this, so they are putting more money into it, right? The other thing is, as they said in that article, uh, there's the numbers they have in North America and Europe obviously have plateaued and stuff like that. So they have to look at new markets and they are looking at the Asian market and they are getting the growth and stuff like that. And you're seeing that because in the Asian market, they said Australia, New Zealand was their biggest uh, market money maker and stuff like that for Netflix. And now it's going to be Japan. In terms of the Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then uh, it was interesting. They were talking about other deals, obviously, uh, that are coming in behind. We're talking about HBO Max and we're talking about Disney Plus. And I think for HBO Max on the Warner side, it was interesting them talking about South Korea and how they were thinking of investing in making uh, a large minority out of uh, the one uh, K-pop company. I think it was Hybe. Hi, the, comp- the company H-Y-B that, that formerly big hit entertainment who 
uh, is the who is now the house of well, always has been, but is the house BTS. that BTS made. Yes, and they were saying that would help mm-hmm. them in the K-pop uh, area and stuff like that. That would be a big uh, win for them. Yeah, there's, but now you're hearing hearing stories about not just Netflix, but every other seemingly overseas, maybe North American-based entertainment conglomerate taking an investment of some sort. Disney, they said, for Disney Plus is looking at it in the angle of their properties, and they're not going to be doing like tons of shows, like say, for example, Netflix is investing where they're getting the stages in South Korea for the dramas, and then they're getting stages even in Japan for live action there, that it's going to be based on what works for them and those high percentage type shows they think will be wins for them. And we've seen them uh, doing it this week. I think I talked to you guys about how Marvel and Viz are bringing over uh, to North America some of the manga that was published on Marvel properties. And that involved uh, the Deadpool Samurai and uh, the Marvel Meow. And so those are big things for the media mix, I think, for them and stuff like that. And I could see that happen uh, for them to bring it over uh, and talk to collaborators in uh, Asia for that as well. So, Well, I think you hit something there, the way I look at it. It's always, when it comes to talking Disney in this realm, you have to talk about, will it fit Disney? Like, Disney has its brand, and I, I get it. We They sometimes go branch off into other labels as as you can see with star here with disney plus outside of the u.s but in the end it's still about a fit for the core for the core it's name weird and all because i think in disney we always think or we always thought family friendly the house of mouse and so on and so forth but now when they bar- bought marvel and stuff like that and how Marvel now fits in and how, for example, LucasArts fits in, it's kind of changed the dynamics in my mind. Well, it changed, it changed the makeup of the core, really. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I think that's where we're getting at when it comes to and how it Disney isn't fits into like, this. Like, oh, we're going to add a new thing at Disneyland or Disney World and stuff like that with Marvel characters or with Star Wars characters. I'm sure they will, obviously. Well, I, they but... already have. There's there's Star Tours as a huge uh, Star Wars element of of the Disney parks. Um, I I think Marvel they're still planning, but they're planning like a integrated world Avengers campus things across their different parks. Um, so I think with Marvel they're still catching up a little bit, but um, with Disney uh, or with uh, Star Wars, um, I think the last couple years they opened and they've been doing stage shows for a, a, about a year before that. I think. Well, I mean, let's not forget Disney makes most of its money not from Marvel or Star Wars, but from their parks, right? I mean, pre-COVID, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting mm-hmm. to see how you put that, I guess, in the family-friendly uh, perspective, right? Because that's what you think of when you think of Disney. It's like they're for everyone. 
I, I think that the advantage that both Star Wars and Marvel has when it comes to family friendly is that all you really have to do is ignore little bits and they become fine. Like Star Wars has always been, you know, huge with kids from two to 70. But with with something like Marvel, all you really have to do is say, let's not talk about the Punisher. And almost everything else can at least be, you know, filtered to be friendly to, you know, the, the kids crowd. Hmm. I, I don't know how to reply to it myself. I mean, I'd have to think about that one. How, how, how to digest Well, like, you can think about the marketing, thought. right? Um, as, far, as long as these superhero movies have been popular, or even beforehand, you know, little kids would always have the Hulk hands uh, toys. Um, you know, something like Spider-Man is, is Marvel, and it's always been popular with, uh, you know, kids. Um, it's only really kind of the the nuances of the actual comics that uh, during certain time periods and um, periods of um, comics, uh, superhero comics in particular history, where, you know, darker elements uh, come into play. Um, but there's been kid-friendly versions of, this, of these media um, or these franchises, you know, as long as they've existed. And let's, and let's not forget, no one actually reads the Marvel comics right. anymore, right? Comparatively, not as many people. <laughs> Comparatively, no, I think I, I understand where Mo's going because that's one of those watching, uh, reading, watching a movie or watching literature but not understanding the books. It's like watching the Harry Potter movies but not watching the Harry, reading the Harry Potter books. Yeah, exactly. making me think uh, on that one because we're talking about the floppies versus that. It's almost remember we were talking about that, and Roland Kelts was talking about it in regards to you have anime inspired and then the authentic Japanese anime and stuff like that. It almost fits into that in a way. Oh, that the, the whole argument that the upcoming schism he thinks could happen in mm. fandom. Yeah. In a way, to? But you never know. Some people may be watching the anime inspired and maybe Yasuke is that it's like, who knows? It's like many creators came to create, I think a great piece of art. It sounds like from what Kevin and Mo said. You know what I mean? So I don't think you should really pigeonhole it, even though people like to, right? I think I'd agree with you. It's just human nature says we do. And you're right. We should be able to have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. We can try to understand different approaches. So why not? Because it gives us another view of what... Of Plus, let's not forget, people don't like to eat vegetables, man. Come on. I mean, I'm not actively seeking out vegetables to eat. I want some cake. <laughs> you're saying you're not actively no. seeking uh, the Moe uh, anime, Mo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know where we're going here, so. Okay. Let's start on a, a couple different angles and how the battlegrounds are, or the battle lines are being drawn in this sense. And I'll also speak a little bit anecdotally too. And that anecdote had me thinking a few years ago, what's the most popular role or the role that made Jet Li famous? At least. Is it one? People? That one with, uh, with Jason Statham? You're just <laughs> wasting time here, aren't you, Mo? But it does start with the word one, sort of. It was when he played Wang Fei Hong in the Once Upon a Time in China series almost 30 years ago. 
that's I think where we really started to know about Jet Li. And obviously, if you know enough, you know Wong Fei Hong, the character he played, is a folk hero, and it seems the rite of passage for every single martial arts star to have come out of Hong Kong to have played either him or a character or person associated with him in one form or another. Jackie Chan has done it. Yen Biu, one of Jackie Chan's best friends, has done it. Not necessarily Wong Fei Hong, but a character associated. Sammo Hung, one of Jackie Chan's best friends, has done it, but another associate of, of Wong Fei Hong. And then others have played maybe Wong Fei Hong's father, Wong Kei Ying, which leads me to something I remember hearing about a few years ago, maybe about five years ago. HBO did a made-for-TV movie that, as far as I know, is only exclusive to the Asian region that chronicled a story surrounding Wong Kei Ying. So this, I, I just want to start to illustrate where that the investment's coming in. And maybe also just one key, one other key thing, and I don't know which order we'll tackle these, these couple of points. One, anime, and this is almost unrelated <laughs> now, anime is a must-have for platforms to work in Japan. That's one point. We can address that a bit later. But the other one was more interesting. Korean pop, Korean shows making inroads in China for a period. And then because of political climates and because of the South Korean military making moves towards the, towards more better associations with the U.S., China closed off its market to Korean pop items, Korean, Korean dramas, Korean, Korean uh, pop a blanket ban on, on Korean pop. And that opened the doors for Korean studios to take investments and interest from elsewhere. That sort of, that sort of opened up the Netflix side. And now, and now China all of a sudden is doubling back, trying to get their, get their hands back in that pot as well, making agreement with state broadcasters in China and Korea, making agreements with each other in terms of various exchanges and impossible investments. So that's, that leads to my thought on where China will fit into this as a possible investor, as a possible producer, and as a consumer. The, like, like, where would they fit? Uh, those, are my, those are two questions I sort of It sounded like in that article that they're like competing for the K-pop stars and stuff like that now, and the K-drama stars to a degree, because... They had the D3s because of years back with uh, the missile defense and that being put on the Korean peninsula and stuff like that. And then the political temperature of China being what they were, as you said, that they said no more and, imports. And, and frankly, still are. We've seen that culture is a big thing in this because they're like, OK, you're trying to influence us with this or so on and so forth. And it goes back and forth, whether it's the West or China or Russia or so on and so forth. But. Yeah, this is some. This is a story. This is an angle, by the way, to keep an eye on for the future. And I know we're going to talk about this way into the future, but China, I know, seemingly has a certain wariness about influences from other nearby nations, especially Japan, obviously. So they try and cultivate their own. I mean, this is this is 
one of those dichotomies. Remember we remember when Matt Alt slammed the idea of cool Japan because it meant it it worked on the idea it's a government agency or a government initiative telling you what's cool from Japan. When that's not how how Japanese pop culture, whether it's anime, music, video games, that's not how it worked. That's not how it got to that point. It was that was that was organic. But in many respects, any other country wanting to promote their culture in the region, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's China, whether it's South Korea, they're playing from behind. They have to force the issue. In many respects, they do have to need some sort of institution to help push it. And China, ha in, in, in China's case, they have to push it on themselves because whatever organic may have existed from Japan has worked. So they're playing catch up in that sense. And that's a, that's something, I think, an aspect, I think, to keep up with in the, the future. they do have the money, Mike, because we know they have invested in different movies and stuff like that from the U.S. side. And people have questioned that, too. It's like, okay, what cuts or what compromises are being made? And sometimes it is just the Chinese version. And that is the question mark that's going to come with maybe some of the money coming into the Korean dramas, but maybe that won't be as much of an effect because maybe it'll be like one of the Chinese broadcasters, one of the Korean broadcasters, and then one of the streaming partners, maybe Netflix being on that one committee to produce that show and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you, let me give you another anecdote. Okay. I was also flipping around on Omni and we've talked Omni or at least I have over the years. And you know what I ended up seeing? One night, just, just stumbled on it. A Mandarin version of the hit 90s sitcom Mad About You. Sony was able to sell the premise to a Chinese television producer. And they made, like, they took select episodes from it and made their own version of Mad About You in Chinese. And funny enough, it starred a real-life couple. Really? Holy smokes. It's like if <laughs> yeah. all the sitcoms yeah, double you check could have chosen from that era. Think about that. Yeah. Maybe it was a, because it was fairly apolitical, too. So they, they, they picked and choose their the episodes that they thought would work, and they redid it into, into Mandarin. I mean, we've seen these before. Obviously, we hear about, about British sitcoms being adapted to North America. We don't hear a lot about a North American original being adapted somewhere overseas. I only know personally of two, could recall two cases specifically. Mad About You is one of them. The other was Who's the Boss? Who's the Boss, I think, in the 90s itself was adapted into a British sitcom as well called The Upper Hand. And Honor Blackburn, uh, the late great Bond girl, she starred in that version in the role that Catherine Hellman made famous. But I don't know of too many, to be honest. And that was my point. I don't know too many, uh, too many North American titles that might've gotten an adaptation overseas. It's always the other way around. And some, and more often than not, it ends up falling flat. Just ask any adaptation based on a manga. I think what you were what you've been saying about um kind of the idea of what do you know about what have you heard of is really interesting when you um look at 
uh, both uh, South Korea and Japan. Because if you look at Japanese, um, you know, media, whether that is um, music or fictional media like manga and anime, or especially video games, they have such this, this, I guess, um, capital, like cultural capital, but kind of on the undercurrents, right? Like the, um, the different subcultures that exist, like even Japanese video games, they're not the, the kind of video games that, um, at least for the most part, that mainstream people will talk about. But if you look at South Korea, they've really managed to break into the mainstream really successfully. Like they are featured on talk shows and, um, you know, other North American kinds of TV um, when people are talking about them. Average people, average people, that sounds mean, but like, you know, everyday people who wouldn't necessarily think about the sort of geeky or nerdy type of things, they're aware of K-pop, they're aware of Parasite, um, they're aware to some degree of other um, K-dramas um, in a way that, you know, they wouldn't be aware of um, even some of the more mainstream uh, Japanese properties, like, say, Dragon Ball. Yeah, that's a, yeah, no, that's a fair point. I mean, and I know we've had a version of this before, but can somebody remind me how that happened? How was it that K-pop and K-dramas became so popular outside of Korea? How did that happen? Was it also partly an embrace by the producers there? I think it was. I remember now um, a month or so ago, we were talking about K-pop and how producers made it a point to be able to make their beats so that they ended up appealing overseas. Something to that effect. I don't know what the trigger is, but I feel like on top of making the music in a similar style as Western music. Uh, I feel like Korean companies were a lot more receptive to uh, hosting their music on YouTube and letting it be more accessible for fans. Yep. Yeah. So and going so to the embrace, LA so too the, as well. Oh, yeah. So the embrace argument has merit. In I mean, it's, it's it's the age old thing where like if 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 you build it, they'll come. Or not not build it. Sorry. If, if you make it accessible enough, the audience will, will will eventually come, and people will find it, and slowly but surely, it'll grow in popularity. Right? Yeah. So let's go back to let's go to Japan for a couple minutes then. And remember we, the phrase we used there often, more often than not, was kicking and <laughs> yeah. screaming. We say that about anime and that and the Netflix investment. And, and, and this is, and, and remember Netflix's moves are also are similar to where we think is what we think is happening in the, in manga and anime in Japan itself in its own domestic market. Netflix's share in its home markets has plateaued and is even lowering. They have to look somewhere else, much like consumers in Japan for anime and manga, they're growing old. They're dying, low birth rate. They have to look at other places. What compromises are you going to make to be able to get to those other markets? Netflix has Netflix is doing their homework on that. They're investing. They're, and then it kind of clashes with the market, with, with what Japanese producers are facing. They have to compromise kicking and screaming. Right? And, there's, and now there's money. Or seemingly there's money 
And the, and this is probably part of the other issues that are facing the industry too, because we've said uh, seemingly everything could be shrinking in Japan, including the workforce for just generally speaking, but even but especially in for our discussion in things like anime and manga. Because remember, it was never well pain in the first place. Why would anyone want to put themselves through that stress, give themselves an ulcer to be a mangaka, an animator? Doesn't pay well. You could seemingly flip burgers and at least get on, be on the right track in that sense, financially. Pays more to, to get more into the video game side. But now with the money coming in, they need workers. That's the problem. The question is, they're ramping up, right, like, Mike? So you think about that. Yeah, they're ramping like, up. Will they find the workers there in Japan highly skilled? That's the they question better, is, will like, they find the skilled workers there? Or are they going to have to go they, to other places like they have before? Because they've went to China, they've went to Vietnam, they've went to the Philippines, they've went to Korea and stuff like that. And now they have to come back. And they now sort of have to come back. They now sort of have to come back, but... Train may have left the station, at least for a generation. And, like, here's the thing. Money could be flowing in. And we, and we talked about the whole dilemma of, of the production committee and how its trickle effect never really does work for the actual animators and producers there. To the actual studios. That's why it's interesting, for example, for Yasuke, and, something like that, and maybe future productions, how is that going to work? Because is there really a committee there? Right. It's Netflix. Right. And the thing is, if you're if you want if you're expecting to think the the money the money distribution is status quo just like everything else, just like everything else, more like it, changing tone here. It may not be sustainable if you're going to just try and think that you can treat everybody the same way. Because if, if the producers, the animators, don't, if their cut doesn't improve, what's the point of them wanting to be in it? Just a thought. That's my thing. That's where I, I'm starting to think about here. And then it. Depends too. Again, right? I mean, like, that's like the thing about Yasuke is like Mappa was the one that animated, so they gave the money to Mappa. Did it make it down to the animators? That's the question in my mind still, because we've always been asking that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've been asking that since we started talking about it over the over the pandemic series. By the way, happy anniversary to the pandemic series, since we're now in May, and we started the pandemic series in May this week. This weekend, actually. Right, so happy, happy, happy anniversary, guys! In that sense, okay. Let me give one final thought before we end this off, because there's there's a whole load of other thoughts, and I don't think we have time to go through this. And this is where it starts to get interesting. And now my train of thought could be almost. Almost gone. Oh, here it is. Netflix, again. And really any other Western-based streaming platform, or more specifically ones outside of China. Because remember, China has its own domestic services. They'll give preference to that. Netflix is not there. 
Netflix is not there at the moment, right? So where does short, stopping short of being able to get into China, what's in it for Netflix concerning China? And I think this is the way how, like making all these deals, whether it's in South Korean dramas, whether it's in Japanese anime, by having the rights to that is to make sure they get something out of it should it should those same properties that they're investing in well, yeah, get I mean, into if, China. If you bet on every horse in the race, you're bound to win something, right? And they'll be on Billy Billy right. or something like that, right? So, And if they ha- are on mm-hmm. the committee, then they'll get at least a bit of a share. And that's a big, even if it's a small bit, it's still a big bit of the pie for China because that's over a billion people. Right. And it's so it's and important for them that still. With movies too. That's right? what's in, that's where what, basically they flock right. here, and that's, but then somehow they made their money somewhere else, like for example, China. Well, us and them. Remember the Chinese movie I mentioned way back at the beginning of a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, I mentioned it. That was a Chinese movie. That was a hit Chinese movie. Netflix. That was a Netflix original. They invested in it, and then they were able to turn around and be able to sell it to a Chinese streamer there where it was a hit. And that's, and that's the scenarios that I think Netflix want to go with as it proceeds in this thing. Just, just food for thought in all of this. And can I give one more thought? Because I just brought up such a series. What about... Japanese live action dramas. Because, okay, the, and once again, there's, a, there's my bias showing as an anime fan because, because I took such great interest in watching Japanese dramas because of my own interest in Japanese anime. Uh, the clubs here in Toronto, they took a chance on showing fan subs of Japanese dramas back in the day, back in the 90s and, and, and in the mid-aughts. Has, has that train left the station in terms of a Japanese drama really becoming things? Can it get to the level of the popularity of South Korean dramas? What does it need to do? Or is it because of their own kicking and screaming hesitancy, it'll never catch up? Because there's some good shows out there. There's, there's been good shows from the 90s, from the aughts, that I think would people would have loved to see. See the Dencha Otoko TV series. See Long Vacation. Those are the two, those were two key benchmarks in the 90s and the aughts. And we get hints of that, and we get hints of that in some of the those actors Unless- in the various Netflix dramas we see. Sorry. I was just gonna say, un- unless it's based on an existing property or there's some incredibly unique premise, I think that the train is several stations away at this point. Yeah, and I think that might have been the case with Million Yen Women. That's, that was based on a manga and has some noteworthy musicians as stars. And Rila, and Rila Fukushima, who, 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 made some inro- who has made some inroads in North American movies, as, as I mentioned earlier. Just going back to, the, uh, to that example. Sorry, Kevin. I think that they need to just let these shows come out more frequently. And I believe that that is starting to happen. Make your shows more accessible. 
Uh, I think that now you have like all these like stipulations of, Oh, we can't show this actor's face and promotions, all that Johnny's BS, like that needs to stop. I think, and I think we're reaching a light at the end of the tunnel in that sense. I'd like to think so anyway. Yeah, because Johnny's dead. Well, yeah, that's a fair statement. It just, I just feel like there needs to have that, there needs to be that, like, this build up. They need that build up of like discussion and like fan engagement and like accessibility just needs to happen. And I know it's ever so slowly uh, opening up, but. It, Stop uploading frigging two-minute preview music videos and just give me the damn music video on YouTube. Like that—that that needs to be a thing. That needs to stop. Like shit like that. Make it, yeah, make it accessible, man. You—you well, you wonder why, like, it's your stuff isn't catching on these days. Like, that's why. Kicking and screaming, right? It's I, the, I thought it, they were trying to reach out because we saw the news on the anime side from Netflix. Maybe they'll do it for the live action, but their new uh, VTuber star, that is a human, was it a sheep-human life form born in California? Enco. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just saw that before we started taping. I don't totally know what to make of it yet, but that might be my midlife crisis self-speaking. <laughs> well, they'll be I think it was more as many people said, hello, fellow kids. Hey, v- VTubers is a pretty interesting phenomenon. Uh, I, yeah, so trying to, I, I can understand that in that sense. I can understand why they do it. I just don't know what to make of it yet because I saw the initial video and that, and I think, what, 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 what do they give the character's name? What's the character's name? But it was like three minutes and she only spoke. She's supposed to be bilingual, but I think she only spoke less than 30 seconds in English. The, the interesting thing... Yeah, so it was... Kevin? Oh, I was going to say, the interesting thing with VTubers is that, you know, as a viewer, you know that there's a person behind the fictional character, mm-hmm. but then there are times when, like, there's a, there are times when the, the actor or actress behind the persona slips, and, like, they let little bits of their personal life slip because there's usually a narrative that you have with these vtubers but sometimes they'll forget briefly and then a part of their real self comes out and people find that endearing hmm wonder how uh the company finds that uh because as we know it's kind of like the j-pop stars and stuff like that that they kind of are managed to a degree yeah but this one's interesting because it's a Netflix employee, right? Yeah, buy and uh, they joke it's like the information that only Netflix employees know, and they will share it with us. By and large, the impression I've been getting is that uh, the agents are usually okay with this. Okay. 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 Cover. Yeah, because I know they were having a brouhaha about uh, one of the recent uh, animes this week showing a character that looked like a popular uh, VTuber and stuff like that, and they were on them like no tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> like it's going to be erased from future uh, broadcasts and uh, Blu-ray and stuff like that. 
as like how to summon a demon lord or something like to that effect the second season and it was uh one of the more popular vtubers uh, recently it's like a cat girl and it was similar image that's for sure braided ponytails carrots in the braids and then yeah okay anyway there's i i got all ranty there sorry But there's, uh, as I said, lots of angles, lots of thoughts. Thank you for mentioning the VTuber on that, James. Because seriously, because that's another that's another development. I I hate to tell you, Mike. It's like we may talk about these things, but VTubers and the NFTs. I'm still scratching my head on them. So I don't think people our age, Mike, will be able to understand them ever. But hey, if you enjoy it, who am I talking? I. Except maybe the NFTs. I'll have to agree with uh, Jeff on that. Probably not so much. Bill Moore did a, a solid like five minute piece on this yesterday, like perfectly explaining it for anyone over the age of like older than a millennial, I guess, or the old millennials. But it's 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 pretty funny, man. Yuppies. Okay. Well, send me the link. Okay. Anyway, let me uh, let me end this thought and then. Obviously, the debate will continue, and I know we'll see it. We'll be talking about this in some other form at some point in the likely near future. Two tweets. Justin Savakis, in talking about this article, tweeted out, I have so many mixed feelings about all this international money flowing into what was once a weird, artistically interesting, and artur-driven medium. O-T-O-H. That ship sailed a decade ago. On the other hand, that's what it means. Matt Alt basically quoted the last line in his book, Pure Invention, A Planet of Dreamers Made in Japan. That was interesting because it was in relation to the big box office hits uh, last week that we might talk about quickly in the next right. segment. Big, nice segue, but... Uh, let me also, well, there's one other uh, point I want to make before we end it, but uh, yeah, maybe that's a good good way to uh, end all this off. I, I just know, I just know we'll be talking about this. Oh, wait, uh, tweet out of context. Yes, tweet out of context. Planet of Dreamers made in Japan. Matt Alt put that tweet up in relation to showing the final numbers from last weekend's box office in North America. <laughs> My apologies, Matt. <laughs> I'm really, really sorry about that. <laughs> so tweet out a context right there. And I guess we'll talk about that in a few seconds. So when we return, yes, we'll talk about the box office, albeit briefly. We'll talk about, oh, we'll talk about novels. We'll talk about wrestling. We'll talk about Ghibli live action. And maybe we'll talk a little Voltron when we go through the headlines and brief the bullets up next when the anime roundtable continues. It's the Six Talk Podcast Network. And the podcast now continues. In front of a virtual audience, thank you for listening. And online via the Six Talk Podcast Network, the official podcast of Anime North. Nicholas, Austin, Ing, Shamarki, Greg, continuing the conversation with you. 
Okay, is there a follow-up to the first segment you guys want to express before we move on? Yeah, watch Yosuke. Cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because you, you guys were all talking. Yeah, because you, you guys were friggin' spoiling it during the break. I'm sorry. It's just it's one of those things where like it's kind of hard not to spoil. I mean, there's more to it than just the Black Samurai guys. Just gotta watch it. That'll be probably on my list this week. We want to add anything else? And then watch it again. It, well, I mean, I mean, uh, back to the whole uh, Japanese drama thing, too, I guess. Well, there isn't really much else to add. I, I, I get the feeling we'll come back to it anyway in some form. Yeah, maybe the train did leave the station on, on the older titles. Yeah, but, I honestly think it has. Like, like, does anybody talk about any of those older shows? Like maybe GTO, maybe Hananyori Dango. Fair point. I'll tell a story I know in the future, though. Just to just give a thought, okay? It'll be interesting to see what future evergreen titles are actually evergreen because it's just they're just pumping them up out now, unlike uh, before, right? Where there were only so many, and you had to pick and choose. Well, and I think that's would trade their favorite series, yeah, like that, Cowboy Bebop, and those ones back in the yeah, day. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think whatever, and coming back, just juxtaposing this with my whole thought on Japanese dramas, the few that did were able to come out became evergreen. So that, that's so for any, if there's we're going to ever re-see any anything old, it'll be what we consider evergreen. Because of, for whatever reason, fandom or their ties to an established work that did make it in North America or outside of Japan, like, for that matter. You hear more talk with movies. Like, you definitely will have, there is like a niche crowd for Japanese movies. But yeah, I think uh, it's going to take a while. TV dramas? TV dramas is, yeah, I think we're, I think they're playing from behind there. I think, I think it's just a commitment issue, right? I mean, a movie is more prestige. You'll see it at festivals and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's only maybe at uh, two, three hours of your time. Yeah. Unless you're, you know, uh, that, that dude who makes long movies. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there, there's a lot of those too. Anyway. So you ready to go? Ready to do, to really dive into the second segment? Yes. Okay, and you know what we do in the second segment, typically. We're going to, we lock and load. It's time for headlines in brief, the bullets. Little things which may become big things. I think we could go of the five, four could be, uh, four of them could be a rather significant discussion. Maybe three. I'm hoping three. Okay, once again, referring to my tweet out of context or reading a tweet out of context matt alt a planet of dreamers made in japan and he puts up a graphic of last weekend's north american box office mortal kombat 23.3 million demon slayer the movie 21.1 million godzilla versus kong which was number one by default pretty much the week before or as they say in italian defaulto 4.3 million in third place. Okay, that joke fell flat. Any thoughts? Any thoughts? Because I think this is basically what we're going to see this weekend as well. Yeah, they said uh, it's neck and neck with uh, Mortal Kombat and Demon Slayer again. And 
I'm sure uh, Aniplex and uh, Funimation are happy because supposedly they only spent about 400000 US on marketing and one of it was on like putting a wrap around uh, a subway train in LA to go around and stuff like that. So they, they made quite a lot of money compared to any other anime movie before, I would think. So real return on investment. Small, small investment, really. And the other interesting thing is we talk about um, made in Japan, stuff like that inspired by Japan. And I think people forget in regards to Mortal Kombat, yes, it was made in the States, but you couldn't have had that in the 90s and stuff like that without the scene in Japan, without Osaka, without SNK and Capcom and those fighting games that really popularized in the arcades and stuff like that. Yeah, without Street Fighter 2 in particular, I think. Yeah, definitely Street Fighter 2, and then, of course, King of Fighters, and there's so many others. But I guess people kind of forget that in a way, right? Well, when was the last time anyone like played on one of those um, cabinet arcade face-to-face, you know, that type of situation? Well, it depends on how many, how many are left. God, Hardly. True. Might have been uh, York University. Uh, oh, when man. Still, when they that's still have them. I don't check think out that's story. still around, but yeah, no, 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 Arcades, remember, in the mall, yeah. Was... Yeah, York University is closed, I think, when I was still there, like my, my final year there. But I think that might have been the last. I mean, I'm not a huge fighting game person, but. That uh, was so nice. You that sat was... down on the whole thing. <laughs> you had a person like, it was fun, bro. Come on. And I think they had the verse cabinets, too, where you could be on either side. You don't see yep. those as much in yeah. the North American market, remember. And depending on who you ask, it's dwindling fair amounts overseas as well. Yeah, even even in Japan, I think that that is uh, not as not nearly as popular as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Fair it point. Is, it is interesting, like, you know, those top three, like with the, you know, Japan connection of Mortal Kombat that you can make, um, it must be like a really weird moment for normal movie people. To have like a fighting game adaption, uh, an anime um, feature, and you know Godzilla, you know it, we're in a, a box office situation where Godzilla is the most mainstream movie um, on that that list. Um, it's it's kind of interesting that you know the pandemic kind of start as far as movies goes, uh, the pandemic kind of started with Sonic the Hedgehog and is restarting with uh, all these, you know, kind of nerd properties to some degree. Yeah. I guess well, what that means the Oscars are going to be even more interesting next year. Well, or you enough. could say it'll be interesting to think about movie critics and how they would feel about, for example, oh, yeah, back be. in the day of Siskel and Ebert had to go in and those were the three movies they had to review for a weekend. Enough Oscar bait style stuff is still going to be released, even if it's just on streaming. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, well, that's it's part. Oh no, yeah, it'll yeah. definitely be through the streaming, even though there were so many people definitely against that. We know about uh, Spielberg and all that, right? They said mm-hmm. never, and look what happened. No, either that or get left behind. Train leaves the station, and in the case of Godzilla versus Kong. Once again, two sweetest wor- words in the English language, according to Homer Simpson. Default. But, yeah, basically basically the top three is probably in no doubt for this weekend. The only question is, in which order? 
And it's interesting that Demon Slayer, I know we talked about how it would do in North America and all this stuff. And I guess it would have done well, but it definitely looks like it's been having some extra juice. And now Viz is giving out the first volume digitally. So oh, yes. well, I guess I, it's going to be more of a phenomenon yes. than we thought. Mm-hmm. Well, is is the Demon Slayer well, movie accessible for anyone who hasn't seen the series? Good question. Ooh, good question. Because the movie is a direct continuation of the series. Yeah, it, the yeah, that's a fair. That's probably it. So I think that's even more impressive for Demon Slayer that you know it's not an an anime adaptation or a retelling, you know, like some of the Evangelion movies or or you know something like that. It's it's just from what you've said, kind of a, a an ongoing part of it or a sequel or whatever you want to call it, but it's still managing to go toe to toe with huge you know North American studios. Well, I think a key thing is that if you want to get the background, it's pretty accessible if you have a Netflix account because the TV series is there. Mo? Oh, I was going to say, I mean, for this weekend, I mean, let's not forget what just was released yesterday, the uh, 15th anniversary screening of uh, one Canadian but not Canadian enough uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> rebroadcasting of uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I think that's going to take number one spot in the box office, personally. 10th anniversary. Sorry, 10, 10, 10, or so, yeah. Oh, that's out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see how that does. But then it's a very nerd nerd property, so Matt Holt's tweet just as quickly applies. True, I true. Think. Yeah, it definitely was a cult status thing and stuff like that for that series. And it mm. probably is good to get it out there, too, because remember Ubisoft uh, and them re-released the video game in uh, January for all platforms, for recent cool. platforms. Oh, and that's even the graphic novels are manga, like they're not manga format as far as um, reading direction, but they're, you know, size-wise, essentially manga format. So, you know, with Brian Lee O'Malley, there's, you know, lots of clear, you know, Japanese video games and manga inspirations and elements there. The influence is there definitely, right? Even, right. yeah, and even so, in the movie. Well, once again, Planet of Dreamers made in Japan. All he you did hang out, hang out at the Beguiling, and uh, Chris Butcher uh, inspired a character uh, in the uh, graphic novel as well, of course. <laughs> because they, I think they were roommates. That was one of the things I remember. Yes, they were. Okay. Well, let's see how the uh, numbers turn out and settle uh, on Monday, or at the end of Sunday, more like it, before this episode comes out. All right, let's move on, just quickly. Item. Katakawa Corporation acquires U.S. publishing company J-Novel Club. Can somebody tell me the point of this? Because Katakawa has their hands in Yen Press already, too. So, from the sounds of it, uh, looking at the J-Novel Club press release, it looks like it wasn't a straight buyout, but they did buy a majority stake in J-Novel Club. And uh, looking at Sam Penansky's comments, some people may know him as the former founder of Anime Souls. Uh, his, he, he wrote that he needed a strong partner to guarantee their future growth, and he found one in Bookwalker and Katakawa. What I'm curious about is that 
you have J Novel Club putting out light novels, and then you have Yen Press putting out light novels. So there, I feel like there's a little bit of a redundancy there, but yeah, that's I what know. I was thinking. I don't know what you're saying, but I, I see where Sam was coming, and he's still going to keep his share and stuff like that. It's good to see that he has done well and stuff like that. He isn't rolling in the uh, Funimation money when they were doing their successive buyouts and stuff like that. But, but the man got paid. He was able to actually grow this business because when he was with Anime Souls, it was the Japanese corporations and stuff like that, and he had a slim budget. But this one, he actually grew himself. Exactly. And he believed in it. And he said, I can take these light novels, I can get them on the digital platform, then get them the digital copy. And then he grew it into the physical uh, books and stuff like that. Then he grew it into uh, selling manga as well, doing it similar formula where you have your membership and you get a chapter a week, so to speak. And then once it's done, you have the digital release. And then if it's good enough, it's really popular, you'll get later on down the line, a physical uh, book release, which is an interesting model. You don't see it as much. And I think that is something on the digital side, digital first. That's what Katakawa was looking at. They made mention of that. Yes, they have Bookwalker, but I think they're looking at this digital first uh, strategy and maybe putting some of those light novels or manga that they have in the future pipeline, maybe putting them on the... Um, J novel site first, so to speak. So that could be a part of the pipeline because J novel, uh, Sam was saying in the FAQs as well, nothing is going to change, that this is to strengthen them going forward and to actually compete for those bids for titles and stuff like that. I think, once again, remember I told the story of Future Shop and Best Buy 15 some odd years ago here in Canada. And I think. I sort of start to think along the similar lines here. Katakawa decide to buy in to an at least better established, if not fully established, but certainly further along distribution structure that they hold, held interest in, i.e. digital. They wanted a piece of it. They think they would have had problems establishing their own version of it, so they bought one. Or at least it was uh, certainly easier to do so. And they did have Bookwalker. So that is the thing. But I'm not sure how well Bookwalker has done for them. They're still obviously going to keep that. But they've made deals with other publishers for that platform. For example, I know Kodansha, some of their digital-only titles, they have put on Bookwalker. And some of them are exclusive to Bookwalker for a few of them. Okay. Oh. And right. I guess some of the thoughts, too, is similar to what Kevin worried about uh, earlier on is talked about, and I thought about is Kodansha and a lot of their series staying digital only or kind of testing the grounds with digital first and then saying, you know what, we're just going to leave it digital or something like that, or longer series just being digital only. And we haven't seen that from Katakawa with Yen Press but it'll be interesting to see how it moves forward and stuff like that, especially since they have a really nice pipeline in J novel to get the digital first through basically kind of like the Crunchyroll model we wanted, right? Where we can read it for a bit. And then if we like it, we can get the digital copy later, or if it's really popular, maybe hopefully we'll get that physical copy. Once again, the word algorithm comes into play. Surely they'll keep up with what's popular amongst all that. 
Mm-hmm. Surely mm-hmm. they'll have the means to do so. And obviously that'll tell a few tales and where something could go in the future. It's it's an intriguing, it's an intriguing acquisition for sure. I I just don't like I, I'm not as much in the know. That's why I asked you two. Go ahead, Kevin. Another concern that I've been seeing in the comments of the ANN article is that people are worried that because J Novel Club is has their DR, DRM free approach to their releases, whereas Bookwalker is the opposite of that. People are concerned whether or not the DRM free aspect of that will disappear or not. And they mentioned that in the FAQ sounded and for now, nothing's going to happen, but obviously that doesn't mean much for the future, right? Mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens. It's more of stay tuned, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But as we know some of this in the it's money, 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 and they need a sugar daddy to continue uh, with the arms race, right? Because that's what has happened in the manga field. A lot of them have those connections to some Japanese corporations or someone that can help them out. It's kind of ironic in a way that Tokyo Pop, remember, has shrunken to where they are and stuff like that because they just don't have the connections and they're just in it with a certain niche and they do what they want with targeted titles. Spin those discs, DJ Milky. Okay. I, I'm hopeful in one thing in the future is like as long as the J Novel website can continue as is and that idea can continue on, I like to see more titles come to that because Crunchyroll had an opportunity to do their approach that they did with anime for the manga market. And they only got a few Kodansha titles. And then after that, it's like they forgot they had a manga section on their website. Yeah. And that would have been nice to actually go and read it in that streaming type profile and stuff like that instead of buying it chapter by chapter. Missed opportunities, perhaps. 100%. Like, I am not paying for chapter by chapter releases. Okay. I get where you're going. I mean, if the chapter by chapter releases maybe exclusive or has some kind of collector ish behind it, maybe I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Who knows? As I said, uh, there there isn't much I could really add to this. So thanks, uh, thanks for giving some thorough thoughts there, uh, James, Kevin, and giving a thought here, there, Mo. Item. WWE president. Says WWE sells multi-episode anime series to Crunchyroll, and it's very short on details here. Just said that it's that's been done, and that the WWE likes to expand its brand beyond the ring. So it focused on developing a slate of original programming from WWE Studio. I guess seemingly for their streaming service, which is now on Peacock in the states. So, because that's been now tied to Universal, but it's still an independent thing just about everybody everywhere else. I mean, remember, the one thing that kind of comes to mind when I read that part of the statement was the pivot that they were forced to make about 20 years ago when they renamed themselves from WWF World Wrestling Federation to WWE World Wrestling Entertainment. 
that name really doesn't stand out as much anymore. I mean, I sort of start to think of it that way. And I, I respected the pragmatic reasoning behind the name when they were when they lost a bunch of court cases for starters but <laughs> to the panda bear yes to the panda bear because pandas rule but yeah, I, but when they when they when they finally revealed their new name their new corporate name to this and they got criticized they mentioned they had been branching out and it had been long established that pro wrestling was fake wasn't real competition. It was scripted, fake in that sense. Although Mick Foley will say real life is faker. So this is kind of in line with the thinking that was presented 20 years ago to me. And, and if you want to go further on the anime side, just remember where, which one of the things you used to see at anime North, a wrestling ring. And, there's a lot of overlap between pro wrestling fandom and anime fandom too. It somewhat surprises you. And you see that at Anime North. I know Daryl Surratt goes on and on about pro wrestling. Plus, in many respects, it has me thinking of Hannah Kimura again, the late female pro wrestler. So those type of thoughts all come in. But that all said, this particular thing seems very vague on details. I think it's very early to say the least because they reached out to Crunchyroll, uh, Anime News Network did, and they said the company declined to comment at this time. So it's probably a very early in development uh, title at the moment compared to their other Crunchyroll originals. Mm -hmm. I wonder what to expect, though. Well, they have a lot of uh, ideas they could work off of because, as you said, there are many of the wrestlers in the WWE that are big fans of video games and of anime and so and have those outsized personalities, so they have a lot they could work off of. Mm -hmm. Well, one, it, you had me thinking, and I forgot his name now, but one half of New Day, one of the tag teams in WWE, is Xavier now... Also he said, thank you. Xavier Woods is, uh, has been tapped to be a host on G4 when that reemerges from, from the Universal Archives sometime this year. And because he's such a, such a video game player and, you know, a perfect fit there in that sense. What I wonder we'll, if we'll end up seeing is something like Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. And that's dating myself. Because we're talking an early 80s cartoon that surrounded the adventures of Hulk Hogan with Roddy Piper as the main bad guy. In, I in, mean, that, that, in that series, like, were they still wrestlers or were they like established as kind of superhero type characters? No, they were just wrestlers just, you know, going town by town doing stuff, but, you know, getting into trouble with each other. Because I'm, I'm curious how, because, you know, Wrestling has uh, fiction elements. I, from what I'm aware of, wrestling has some fictional elements to begin with. Um, I haven't, you know, dove into things too much. But, you know, from what I gather from friends, you know, there is a level of sensationalism or, you know, very mild fantasy. And I'm, I'm curious how much they're going to lean into that, uh, you know, with the realm of animation. Probably not into a Saturday morning cartoon-like <laughs> thing. 
like 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 said Hulk Hogan cartoon. But never say never. You're right. And yeah, there's that's sort of how pro wrestling works. Maybe it's the the sensationalism elements that certainly gives it its appeal, but ends up hooking in people who are into anime too. And they definitely have the crossover because we've even seen it in the stands with people holding up their signs that are either anime inspired or video game inspired. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember. Uh, and they... asking for Mother 3. <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. And that was funny too because that came up again this week in a tweet oh, yeah. from Terry Crews. Oh, man, that was a good one. And a couple weeks ago with Reggie with his, saying that he had his uh, secret Mother 3 copy that he wished uh, was released. Oh, <laughs> man. Well, it's 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 out of left field in one way, but there's you can you can make connections. I think there's, so it's there's not as far fetched. I think there's possibility there. I mean, you know, another uh, thing that uh, has was announced, I think maybe a couple months ago, was that they're actually making a an, a common writer anime series. And you know, the only reason why that connects to me is that I know that common uh, writer and. You know, things like uh, Super Sentai are live action fictionalized, you know, superhero shows essentially. But I always connect those series with those uh, stage shows and those, you know, rooftop performances you sometimes see parodied in in anime um, that are usually, you know, on the roofs of malls and things. So I, I see that there's, you know, some level of connection with that live action performer element and, you know, the fact that they're making a, an anime series based off of a live action production, um, I am kind of leaning into thinking that whatever comes from WWE's uh, can, um, animation, I think it might be a little bit more um, fantasized or, you know, fantasy adjacent or fantastical than just here's some wrestling people, but they're animated now. I could see that certainly myself. And remember that we've, we've even seen WCW briefly go into comic books for a bit too, but it was all based on their present wrestling plots at the time. I, I who knows? Who knows? I, I think I, I lean more towards taking WWE personalities and putting them in movies. So basically what you see with WWE movies itself, right? See that there's a branch out that way. We'll see, but it, but uh, it's just interesting that we go into this realm now. Just something worth talking about. Although nice little segue there, Jeff. Live actions. Let's talk about that for a couple seconds. Studio Ghibli uh, revealed, or Studio Ghibli's Toshio Suzuki revealed that there have been. Various producers who have asked permission to make a live-action version of Nausicaa. Hmm. So, and maybe the most noteworthy name in some of those would-be producers, Hideki Anno. Something like this. The first thing that comes to mind is Miyazaki would have to sign off on this, wouldn't he? Correct. They said that that Miyazaki like was open to the possibility of Nausicaa having a sequel, but he was talking about hypothetical project uh, that one, the sequel being animated. 
being put in the hands of Hideki Anno, so you never know. Maybe he might think about letting him do a live action. And the other thing that would maybe make him think about is Hideki Anno has done some really great work on live action uh, adaptations of older properties, his own, sorry, not his own, but of Godzilla, <laughs> of Ultraman, and of Kamen Rider. I was going to say Evangelion, but then I'm like, oh yeah, that was a garbage fire, and he had <laughs> nothing to do with that. That was ADV. <laughs> oh boy. It's... We've made jokes about what's become known of Miyazaki's prickly, grumpy personality. So... Most producers probably would not be able to get that permission, but like you, like we were saying here, Ano might be one of the few who could come close, if not accomplish it. I think there was an interesting thing in the article too. I forgot about it, but in 2012, Ano uh, created a live action. Uh, it's uh, Tuket Satsu uh, special effects for a short for Ghibli titled uh, "The Giant God Warrior Appears." and Tokyo and basically it said that was inspired by Nausicaa so that would be another thing in his courts so to speak but uh, you never know it's uh, up to Miyazaki really right yeah yeah I know although you know that there's a lot of the fandom who who is begging for this not to see a light of day sorry I was just going to say, I know that this is likely to be a, a Japanese production, but uh, I would love to see uh, Patrick Stewart reprise his uh, role as the old man, uh, Yupa, was it, um, for the live action series. <laughs> he would, uh, you know, just put a beard on him, and uh, I think he'd be uh, perfectly cast. Um, Wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, man, that'd be something. I, well, we, we've had this... Well, you know, in the la in the line of what we just talked about earlier, never say never. Given given the tr unfortunate track record of Japan's CGI productions, I wish that if this gets made, it uses practical effects. Um, you know, for the the insects and uh, things like that. Um, so in that sense, oh panel might be perfect. Yeah, like I I. <laughs> I think Nausicaa is a, a beautiful story. I haven't read the manga, but um, I've I've listened to talks at Anime North and online just about how, you know, amazing the manga is as well. But I think it's a beautiful story, beautiful world building. I don't want it sullied by what normally comes from Japanese CGI production. I know a, a lot of work goes into it and it's not complete garbage, but they have not a great track record. <laughs> Kevin. My thoughts exactly, Jeff. <laughs> there needs to be a substantial budget for this to look good and for this to be a good production. And Japanese movies don't always have that. They seldom do, I feel. So I'm a little hesitant. It's not like I wouldn't want it to exist. I, you know, go for it. But I'm just a little worried. Mm -hmm. Maybe they need the Netflix money. Who knows? Well, I, we're assuming that this is going to happen. Yeah, no, never... obviously uh, it probably won't happen. But you never know. They need something extra to make it happen. Stuff like that. 
but yeah, like I don't. Uh, Miyazaki like, uh, being the man he is would allow anyone to do it. But yeah, if he I, did, he probably would let Ano because he has such high praise for Ano. Well, I was about to say you have to trick Miyazaki, <laughs> or, but, or you just wait until no, don't say, it, don't say. It. Miyazaki yeah. passes on. Oh. <laughs> I was and literally going to bring that somebody up. Key will somebody will feel so oh. bad letting Ano, well, assuming to, oh. he's alive too, that then it can happen. Oh. You had to say that. And, and to plug, <laughs> just because we are talking about Nausicaa and because Jeff hasn't read the manga, you should definitely pick up the Viz hardcover set. They still have it, and if they do a sale, it's worth every penny. It is beautiful and colored and everything you could imagine. And I imagine the public library has it too, if you want to just get a taste of it. I'd like to think so. Okay. And it's interesting because remember, Miyazaki, it took him many years to actually create that. And it was between as many different animation projects and stuff like that from way back when. It's a wonder he he's no longer a happy guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's not much else to add, to add to this one, is there? I mean, we're, we're going to, I know we're going to come back to talking Ghibli before this episode ends. And Miyazaki before this episode ends, so maybe we'll just double back for a couple seconds. One more bullet, I guess. On April 20th, World Events Productions founder and the producer of Voltron, Ted Koppler, passed away. He was 77 years old. He was also uh, considered a TV pioneer because he was a former G general manager of a local St. Louis television station, KPLR. And I think that was pretty much the flagship station for, for Voltron and world events. So yeah, it's sad news, obviously to hear anybody dying, but obviously things come to mind when you hear that this guy was one of the key figures in localizing Voltron into North America. And it had me thinking a little bit. Voltron came out in the early 80s or early to mid 80s. I think 84, 85, was it? I think that's what it said. Yeah, 84, 85. That's when it and Voltron first came out. And it came out around the same time as Robotech. And much like Robotech being uh, stitching together three separate series in Macross, Southern Cross, and Mospeda, Voltron was stitching together two series as well, Go Lion and Armored Fleet Dairuger 15. And this is my thought to you guys, and we already said that you probably wouldn't be able to answer it, but I want to put it out there anyway and have you guys make an answer and then put it out for the listeners. Over the decades, Carl Masek, the guy behind Robotech, was dragged through the coals by fandom for what he did to the three original series that make up Robotech. But that venom didn't come to people like Ted Koplar or Peter O'Keefe, who was the other creative force behind what became Voltron. That didn't happen on the Voltron side. As far as I could tell, at least, uh, at least any Venom se seemingly hasn't really endured 
over the decades. And I'm to this day wondering why. But I think this is the midlife crisis me speaking, because that might be well before your time. All, all four of you. The only but... thing I can think of is that people care about Macross and they don't care about Golion. I think if uh, Robotech was just the other two series, I, I think that the situation would probably be more balanced. But that's just, you know, I own all the original Voltron, but I've never opened it just because it was like $3 at the CNE one year or something. <laughs> Good deal, dude. Good deal. <laughs> is that the Media Blasters one? Because I know Media Blasters did well with Voltron, and they also released Goline as well. So. Prob like they were, you know, the head of the lion in these tin cases, and I was just at the CNE, and it's like, yeah, oh, that's, $3 that's a Media Blasters. They were in tin cans. Yeah. $3 a season. I'll buy all of them. And I have I watched the first episode, and I was like, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been watching worse 80s cartoons there no uh, Jeff, yeah <laughs> i'm i'm sure like i i know i didn't give it a fair shot but like i was really yeah it it surprised me um but yeah i think you know people still talk about macross they don't talk about any of the other shows voltron yeah. had the netflix anime and it had the other revival i think in the the late 90s or early 2000s there's been at least three revivals that I could think of. Yeah, but... One one was a continuation, the other was sort of... Or two of them were continuations, and then, then the actual Netflix one was like a reboot. Yeah. As far as I remember. We'll, we'll see what happens with Robotech in the, in the future um, to see if that can kind of be revived. But, yeah, I, I mean, this is coming from a person in early mid thirties. So I wasn't really around for either of these shows. Anyone else have a thought or you think, or much the same. Yeah. Uh, you're too young to really speak on it. I mean, yeah. I feel like, I feel like Voltron has more of a mainstream, uh, appeal because of all the reboots and, and remakes and so forth. And I, I mean, we'll see if, if, if that live action, um, a crossover happens, then you know maybe that'll catch on, and people will be like, "Oh, yeah." We, we well, you just hit an interesting point. I think all the reboots over the last twenty years, I guess, especially starting with uh, Voltron: The Third Dimension, that CG thing they tried. Yep. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of the same thing with I guess Saint Seiya, right? I mean, that's had a whole bunch of reboots and so forth, and that's continued its legacy onwards and onwards. Mm -hmm. And I think it just sort of managed to bury the original series in, the, in its own way. Kevin, do you have a thought? Not really, because I was too young for Voltron. Uh, okay. And never, I don't think it was even in syndication by the time I was old enough to watch TV. And never watched Goldline or Direcker, so no comment. James. No comment as well. I wouldn't <laughs> really have the foggiest to tell you the truth, right? But mm -hmm. fandom can be weird sometimes too, right? And the other thing, though, is remember Carl Masick continued on with uh, Steamline Pictures and many other things. So that could be, play a part as well because he was still in the public eye for a longer term, maybe. And, and basically, and basically, being by being in the public eye, by continuing to do what he did with Streamline. 
Maybe maybe the bullseye just never left. It never faded. Because he was still involved and still out there for fans. I never knew about the name Ted Koppler until this week. So I guess that's a fair point. I know that they're, you bring it up. I know that they're not stitched together uh, series, but I find it interesting that if you look at um, Battle of the Planets um, or Gachaman and uh, Space Battleship Yamato and what was it, Star Blazers is the English yeah. title. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think with those series, both the adaptation and the original are both kind of liked and, you know, for a fictional series with communities relatively respected. Like, I think that people understand, oh, okay, you like that version, cool. Oh, you like that version, cool. Um, and I think that's, I think that's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like the uh, the the Thundercat stuff, right? I mean, there's many iterations and adaptations. Same thing with GI Joe. I mean, it's you like what you like, right? Well, I will place one theory now that uh, now that you sort of mention it. Go Lion, Star Blazers, or Yamato, and and Gotcha Man Battle of the Planets. How true? How close were they to their original plots? Well, in many respects, the Macross side of of Robotech was too, but I think part of, I think that's part of the story in the Venom, right? Because they tried to. I think Robotech was stitching. You well, know, as I said, that's a we can go on that for. <laughs> and they were creating their own plot lines and stuff like that's that. That's probably their own characters, which is a big thing, and even Gigantor and all those other earlier series. They were there were changes, but. It wasn't to that extreme, I don't think. Maybe that's where it is. But always good to get a second, uh, uh, well, uh, sixth, seventh opinion, I suppose. (laughs) And maybe somebody who's a little older and can understand that and explain it a little better, at least to me. With, With Robotech stitching, were they like simultaneous stitching? Like maybe that's part of the issue. Simultaneous in what way? Like, were, were all three series, like, stitched together out of order? Because if you look at Voltron, like, there are still multiple series, but it's, we'll go through one and then start the other. Did did Robotech try to combine them, like, all at once? Or was it the same kind of situation where you went from one to the other? Basically, went, went it's... From the other. Went, went to the okay. other. Went to the and other. Macross was the first one and the most and then, memorable for yeah. most people. And then they just basically found a way to transition from the end of one and the beginning of the the next okay so i feel like it was kind of like the next generation or the new generation that moves on to that next series even though the character designs and everything look different to say the least Mm -hmm. okay so it is a similar situation then yeah i suppose but there's a thought right there as i said it's it's one of those things Maybe I would ask for more standard historical perspective on, and maybe not uh, something that none of us could truly give a good answer to. We can give our answers, and maybe some will agree or disagree, but I think somebody with a more historical perspective on those things can give a more solid answer. But I like thinking, anyway. Nothing wrong with thinking, right? Nope. Well, we got through those bullets in about 45 minutes. That's a, I think that's a good re- a record there. 
less than 45 minutes. Not bad. Well, that's pretty much the headlines that that caught our attention for the last couple weeks. Well, at least the ones we're willing to talk about. Before we go this evening, let's take a romp through the anime community calendar. And I'll start it off by making a quick recommendation. We have constantly, constantly talked about the Japan Foundation's New York's ongoing series about giving academic perspectives to Japanese pop culture. I believe the, they are now up to seven little seminars or lectures or episodes or whatever you want to call them. The seventh one happened this past Thursday, and it's actually the first of a two-parter that focuses on Studio Ghibli. The first part focused specifically more on Miyazaki himself, and even more specifically, or more telling, the seminar or the presentation was referred to, or titled, Hayao Miyazaki, Children Entrusted with Hope. I think everyone knows how much kids play a role in all of his movies. They're the central characters more often than not. So in this discussion, Susan Napier, who we've talked about, but now we get to really see her, her academic chops, if you haven't already, and Helen McCarthy, who's a regular guest at Anime North, and both are very well-versed, obviously. You don't have to take my word for it. Plenty out there. They talk a lot about the type of roles children have in his movies. And we don't have much time left tonight, so I'm not going to go too far into it because it's a, it was like a two-hour-long presentation. But suffice to say, one key thing in, in all of this is you kind of have to look at Miyazaki's own life experiences to get a lot of the answers, but they'll get more specific. Also, also you have to kind of go in terms of Miyazaki's own recent life experiences to probably also, funny enough, explain why he has such a grumpy personality now. Because they kind of address that in the latter stages of the presentation. It's a little over two hours long. We'll put the links up for sure in the show notes here. And of course, I've sent the link to the others and invited them to watch it. It's on YouTube now. Did any of you get around to watching that? Anybody? Or do you have an impression or a thought about it in any form? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Really? I mean, we, we, we constantly joke about uh, Miyazaki's grumpy personality. So in many respects, Napier and McCarthy will, before the end of it, have you understand why he might be that way now. But it had me also thinking about a bunch of other things and... And if you watch it, uh, place, place that thought, give that thought 
pair all the thoughts that you will see in this presentation, and then juxtapose this with something like Demon Slayer. And I know because much has been made about Demon Slayer being the highest grossing fi animated film in Japanese history, or film altogether, but certainly, uh, certainly animated. And in some ways they were different, but in some ways they were similar too. But think about that if you ever decide to watch the presentation. There's my personal recommendation right there. Also, still to come in May, since we're starting May, TCAF. James, Kevin, I know you will want to say something about that before TCAF happens. Yeah, it's a longer edition this time since it's going to be virtual. It's May 8th to uh, May 15th, so starting next Saturday and then going to the following Saturday. And I know Kevin mentioned there's another uh, manga guest this time from uh, Kodansha Akane uh, Shimizu uh, because Cells at Work is uh, finishing it up, and that's going to be an online presentation as well. So that'll be a nice one to watch as well. I mean, an online art exhibit with her work from the sounds of it. That'll be interesting to see how some of those will play out. That one probably, I guess, will be a video they might either have on their YouTube or something like that. But some of the presentations I know will find out when they are during the schedule. But it sounds like they're going through the weekdays too. So hopefully they archive them for those of us who work during the week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I might then, just have it in the uh, background, if anything. Well, uh, some of them, I guess, we could have in the background, but it depends on how they do the uh, presentations because sometimes you want that visual element, right? If yeah. they show some of the stuff, which is incredible. And sometimes they might do a drawing too, right? Like they might Point do, taken. they've done that before where they're drawing while they're interviewing and stuff like that. They, mm -hmm. do, they ha don't have the schedule. I'm sure they'll be later in the week, hopefully. But they do have the exhibitor list for 2021. And it'll be interesting to see how people will be visible and sell their wares a lot of familiar names but another familiar name that i just mentioned to mike and the rest of you guys about angela being on the list so i hope she does well yeah so she'll be there for sure to promote moonstone diadem at tcaf and i'm sure when we return we'll uh, have more of a report from James and Kevin and everybody else. I, 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 by my own admission, TCAF is not something that's been on my radar. I fully admit that over the years. But I know for James and Kevin, it is. And Mo, Jeff, you two, do you, is it something on your radars? I try to attend it every year. Um, it's uh, very inspirational as someone, you know, who does, um, you know, tool around with um, illustration and comic art as a hobby. Um, so I think it's it's a great place for um, both larger forces in the industry and, you know, smaller independent people do, you know, just hobbyists people, you know, um, I don't speak French, but it's kind of neat to see the the French language contingent there every year. It's it's a remarkable um, physical experience when it is at the the reference library. It's you know, as I've mentioned at the beginning, very inspirational, a lot of create creative energy there. Um, very, you know, good natured throughout. Um, lots of great panels and uh, talks um, that go on there. 
I saw, I forget the name of the manga, but it was um, it's kind of a manga about an artist, um, something Picasso. It was a Japanese manga. And I it's saw the- Kaku Picasso. Yeah, I, I met the author there. He was, you know, limited English, but, you know, very polite and, and great work or great experience there meeting him. So I've had lots of great experiences in the past. I'm not super hyped about an online version of it, unfortunately. I think I'm I'm going to try to convince myself and, and sort of force myself to because, you know, I want to support especially a lot of these medium and smaller uh, artists, but uh, a lot of the enjoyment f- for me was sort of the experience of physically going to that space. Yeah, the reference That's... library is pretty uh, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. and it's beyond there, of course, too. It's like they do have the hotels, but you then do have uh, remember I forget the mall's name. I should remember it just behind Bluer in that where they made the zine uh, section stuff like that the past few years, and it's interesting just seeing the different zines because. It's just all over the place and different creative ideas flowing and stuff like that. And some of it's in the written words, some of it's in the artistic expression. And it's just incredible to see. And even on the video game side at the top, and they've had it in various places, it's not video games or in even top indie games as we think of them. Some of them they're still working on and they're very experimental. And it's just fun just to play something and to. Sometimes you want to try and break it. Sometimes you want to explore and see what's going on. But it's not something you normally see on the regular platform. Sometimes it might be coming to a platform and stuff like that if it's further along. But sometimes it's a school project or just an idea. And these different people bring ideas you're just not expecting. And that's the fun in it. Yeah, I think... And all these different art forms, whether it's comics, the visual prose, or uh, the video game. I think it's safe to say just the way you guys all describe it, that this is something that you cannot appreciate virtually. And that'll only go so far. It may not get anywhere at all. This is one of those things you really have to see in person. It it kind of is this huge cultural event. Like I was lucky enough a couple years ago to see um, Junji Ito um, speak. Um, Everyone talks about Junji Ito's appearance there. Yeah, like it was kind of a a pre-launch party thing. And, um, you know, even though, you know, it wasn't just for for him, there were some other Japanese guests um, there as well. But from, you know, the international perspective, from the very local perspective, it helps the um, their kind of little shop there, page and panel, which I, I, I'm a big fan of, like as a as a retailer. Um, they're one of the best kind of um, smaller comic stores and, uh, you know, sort of sequential art uh, media kind of places, uh, at least in the downtown area. So uh, yeah, I'm going to try to do, as I mentioned, I'm going to try to do my best. But as you said, it, it's this kind of really cultural, creative event. As James mentioned, all those indie games, which in the last couple of years has really, you know, blossomed. I, so we'll see what happens. We'll put up a link, at least to the TCAF website. I as guess we the other always thing do. you can think of is, yeah, it was small, and yes, it grew out of uh, the Ed Mervish's uh, parking lot there behind uh, the Beguiling <laughs> and stuff like that, and it was bi-annual uh, and stuff like that, and then once they got more sponsors, they went to the reference library because Toronto Library got behind it. Some of the consulates, the French and the Japanese and all these others got behind it, and the crazy thing is it's still free. 
that's the crazy yeah. part. It's free. I can go to any part of it. I can see any guest. I can see all these various artists and these people expressing themselves. And I'm not paying a single cent to enter. But if I see something I like, if I see a career and say, I really like this, I can put my money down and help support them. And I'm actually supporting that person right there and there. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. Anyway, but that is TCAF. That'll go begin next week and go into the middle of May. And then we have something to look forward to at the end of May when we hold our first live edition of the anime Roundtable as the finale of day two of anime North's stay at home edition, the second online version to happen. As we mentioned at the top of the show, the call for submissions for the various panels and workshops, what have you closed today. So we'll probably learn a few more details of what's to come for the online version. And for us here, we'll learn a few more details about what to expect when we do our first live episode for Saturday night, May 29th at 11 p.m. We'll tell you more as that date approaches. Uh, more like we'll tell you more as we learn more, too. But in any event, that's all we got for this evening. Once again, if this is the first time listening, don't forget you can contact us. AnimeRoundtable at gmail.com is our email address. Once again, Twitter and Instagram at AnimeRoundtable, AnimeRoundtable.com for our show notes and past episodes. And don't forget to give us a review wherever you get your podcasts or wherever you're getting this, because good reviews will help us in the algorithm and Hopefully, we'll be able to be seen by others who might be really interested in this show. Please leave us a five-star review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts because you cannot leave ratings on Spotify. We do episodes typically once every other week, but every so often we will do episodes on our off weeks as well. Regardless, wherever you're getting this, don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever we come out with something new for you guys to listen to. But until next time, thanks for listening. Good night from Toronto. Join us again for another edition of the Anime Roundtable. congratulations somehow this episode did get a little over two hours i think <laughs> i don't know but with with editing it might be a clean two hours although the little discussion now if you keep it in we'll probably push it over